Welcome to the Breaking Into Stars podcast, where we teach you how to get high-paying jobs in tech in less than a year. Today, March 2021, we're dropping the first podcast since we announced Career Karma's $10 million Series A, led by Gary Tan and Kim Mike Cutler at Initialize Capital. Initialize was joined by several amazing, amazing investors in this round, including one of the most powerful venture capital firms in the world known as SoftBank. You all get to listen to Marcelo, CEO of SoftBank International today, where he doesn't just talk about entrepreneurship and why they invested in career karma, but they, they really talk about the thesis on singularity for the Vision Fund. They talk about how software is reorganizing the world, how software is eating the world. And if you want to break into tech, the trends that you need to be paying attention to so that you can not only survive in this world, but so you could thrive in it. If you want to take action to break into tech today, make sure you download the Career Karma app or go to careerkarma.com slash apply. If you're already learning or you're in the job search and you need to network, make sure you, you download the app and you join our live audio rooms where we have amazing engineers from the top companies in the world that can network with you and help you with your job search. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please send us an email to Ruben Archer or Timor at breakingintostartups.com. If you haven't joined our Facebook community, please do that. Like our Facebook page, drop us a comment, drop us a tweet. And without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timor Meister, and this is the Breaking Into Startups podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so we're actually, uh, we're have, we have a very special guest on our podcast today. We're still um, doing remote interviews uh, coming from different parts of the United States, different parts of the world, but everyone is staying safe and we're excited for COVID to end and help more people get jobs in 2021. And we have a really special guest tonight. Uh, Ruben, do you mind introducing who the guest is? Yeah, we're here with the man, the myth, the legend, Marcelo Claudet. He's a Bolivian tech entrepreneur who founded Bright Star, which is ranked as the largest Hispanic-owned business in the United States for six years that he sold to Sprint after they reached $10 billion in revenue. He's currently the CEO of SoftBank International, CEO of SoftBank Group Corporation, overseeing things with Masa. Uh, together, they've invested in companies like DoorDash, Coupang, Uber, WeWork, and others where he's the executive chairman, um, running things like the $100 billion Vision Fund. He's also the former CEO of Sprint that led to the merger with T-Mobile. He's a philanthropist with the founder of One Laptop Per Child and the Million Project Foundation to give computer access to kids. And in his free time, he's a skier. He's a cyclist and a sports lover. He's the owner of a soccer team, Club Bolivar, believer in the media. He's on the board of Univision. And most importantly, He's a family man. I think you got six kids, correct? Six That's kids. That's right. Six kids. He has an amazing shoe collection. And, and finally, he's an investor in our company, Career Karma. So we're very grateful to have him on our cap table. And before getting into why he invested in Career Karma, let's just say, welcome, Marcelo. Thank you. And th thank you for having me here. Awesome, And man. I'm glad we're finally getting together to do this. Yeah, man. Likewise. I don't know if you remember this, but um, you and I met for the first time at the Brazil... Silicon Valley conference with Nana. Do you remember that conference? I do. That yeah. was uh, 
that was, I think, a couple of weeks after we decided to launch a Latin American fund. So we were uh, testing the waters at Brazil, yeah. Silicon Valley in San Francisco, right? Or in, in yeah. Silicon Valley. That's yeah, right. yeah, exactly, exactly. So, Two years ago. Yeah, so a lot of people on the podcast, they're used to listening to people that got jobs in tech. So I want to start off by explaining what SoftBank is from a venture capital perspective. For the people that don't know what venture capital is, it's people that give money to entrepreneurs to create companies. So can you tell us a little bit about what SoftBank is, um, the Latin American Fund, the Opportunity Fund, and things like that? Yeah. SoftBank is a Japanese company founded by a true serial entrepreneur called Masayoshi Son, who I believe is the smartest guy in the world. He's one of the few people that have the ability to see around the corner who were betting everything. We are the largest tech investor in the world. We manage about $300 billion of assets spread all over the world. And uh, we just invest in amazing entrepreneurs who dedicate their life to disrupting the way we live, the way we play, and the way we work. On a good week, we're investing about a billion dollars a week. I've been extremely lucky to sit in those investment committees that invest a billion dollars a week on amazing entrepreneurs that are changing the world. Awesome. That's a great overview of SoftBank. And it's a very special position to be in, especially given everything that's happening with the pandemic. You know, COVID-19 hit us pretty hard last year and, you know, millions of people lost their jobs. I mean, they're looking to take advantage of these jobs that have been created because of technology. So can you tell us a little bit about SoftBank's view on the future of work. I think the thesis for the Vision Fund is, is singularity in AI and automation. So how does SoftBank think about rapid reskilling and upskilling for people in that regard? So I'll start by saying that we're living probably, I would say, the most exciting time in history since the world got created because in the next five years, every single job, every single industry, every single vertical is going to be totally reinvented. So therefore, we have to look at the world with a total open mind and understand that our job is going to be totally different next year, in three years, in five years than it was before. I mean, if you look what the pandemic has done, it had massively accelerated something that was going to happen, you know, maybe in the course of five to seven years, but the world had to be digitized just out of necessity, right? I mean, uh, the fact that we couldn't be together with other people fact that we couldn't be at restaurants, it forced every single restaurant to be digitized. It actually, it also made us realize that certain jobs that we thought that were essential, they really aren't that essential. And I don't want to piss off any waiter or waitress, but hey, the fact that they brought your menu, today you go, you do your QR scan code, you're able to see what's in the menu, you're able to see recommendations from previous users, and you're able to choose your food. Uh, so the world has changed. I don't see us going back to the old world. So and I'm, I'm talking about the basics, right? The fact that restaurants, you know, one of those big two or three star Michelin restaurants, the, if you would have talked to them prior to the pandemic, they would have said, there's an absolute zero chance that I would be delivering my food. Every single restaurant in the world today is basically, they, they are set up like mini supply chain operations where, you know, you don't need waiters anymore. You need supply chain people. Or making sure that you can process this many orders in busy times and coordinate deliveries and coordinate payments through these uh, delivery cards. And I can go on and on, right? If you go back at jobs, you know, hey, could you ever imagine a shopper from Instacart that will make a living by walking into a supermarket and be shopping for others and actually make good, decent money? 
cash would be zero. You know, people are used to going to supermarket. Well, guess what? If you use Instacart or GoPuff, you know, you never want to go to supermarket again. It's like, why in the world am I going to waste my time doing the same repetitive task and having to find a parking and all that? And we can go in any industry. I mean, if I'm a if I'm a doctor, I mean, or if I'm a patient, do I do I want to go again and wait whatever three hours to see a doctor and be in that in that uh, looking a waiting room, or do I just schedule a Zoom with a doctor who's going to be able to potentially give me a better diagnosis? And I mean, we can go. I mean, do you, do you ever want to go to a bank branch again, right? Most people learn, hey, anything that I could do in those not-so-good-looking bank branches, I can just do it from my phone. So all those jobs that before were so secured, the tough news is they ain't secured anymore. We're going to have to find ways how to do stuff that we didn't think we were capable of. And, and, and that's why we're partners, right? Because I'm a huge, 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 huge believer that we got to teach people new jobs. That, and, you know, maybe kids who are 18 and going to college, you're lucky that they're going to learn the new economy, the new world. But guess what? If you're 40 or 50 and you're going back to college, somebody's going to have to do your reskilling and uh, your retraining and all those things. So that's why we are pumped about investing in your company. Thank you, man. I think you summarized it very, very well. I mean, you've always been a, a man of action and also a man of like putting your money where your mouth is. You did something real recently with Correlation One. I just talked to Shu about it about um, what you all did to train 10,000 data science data scientists based off of what you saw in Latin America, but now you want to do it across the United States. Can you talk a little bit about the Correlation One event investment to like train data scientists, and then we can bring that back into what we're talking about with Career Karma? Yeah. So the world in the past had a scarcity for architects, for business people, for lawyers. You know, the world doesn't need, I mean, yes, we do need lawyers, we need architects and all that, but where the power sits today is we are generating so much data all day long, right? I mean, you know, I have my connected watch, I have my connected uh, whoop, I have my connected aura, which is generating data like crazy. I mean, everything that we do, our cars are generating data, the Uber that we take is generating data, the Zoom that we're doing generates data. So basically data is the new oil. Well, guess what? In order for you to be able to turn that oil into some sort of wealth creation, you need to have something called a data scientist or a computer science ma major or somebody who knows how to code. And that is, those are going to be the jobs of the future. The jobs of the future are not going to be, you know, hey, you know, I want to be a businessman, you know, the, sorry. The jobs are going to be people who have the ability to code, program, analyze data that is being produced at crazy, crazy rates. I mean, you know, before we had to process data, we have like three, four billion people that had a cell phone. There's going to be a trillion connected devices. Everything that, as we know, is going to be connected and that's going to generate data. So the demand for people who understand data, that know how to play with data, that know how to program data, that, that know how to generate insights from data is going to be enormous. And one of the, you know, being a global investor, right? Again, going back to SoftBank, we're the largest investor in China in India, in the US, and Latin America. And where I see that Latin America was falling behind is in the ability to train and generate data scientists. If there's one country that is killing it, it is China. China is making like six times the amount of engineers that we see today. If you look at a company like Biden's, or better known to everybody, TikTok, which we all use now like 
like uh, we're all addicted to TikTok, 75% of the workforce of ByteDance are engineers, right? I mean, in the past, if you look at a media company, they only had like 20% of people doing content. The other 80% were salespeople selling ads. And the world has inverted into these new companies. Well, when you're a company that's delivering content, utilizing artificial intelligence, you're going to need people who understand data. So that's how we came with the idea that we wanted to train and we did a partnership with Correlation One. And we've been doing some fascinating things. Like we have our portfolio, not, not only are we training, you know, we're grabbing, we're training people at the top so they can understand the world as a data-driven world. We're interviewing middle managers so they can understand. So they a data approach to solving problems. And we're interviewing people who are starting their jobs so they understand that the future will be data. And as long as you have a company that has a culture of data, then that company is going to be a winning day, a winning company. So this is why I'm such a big believer. You know, when somebody asked me the other day, is what is the difference between a company that utilizes artificial intelligence or utilizes data to run their business versus a company that doesn't? An explanation that I gave is if, if you go to a racetrack and you put a horse to compete with a Ferrari, the Ferrari is going to destroy them. And that's the exact same thing that is happening with, for example, new media called IE, Biden's TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, and old media, hey, your, 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 your newspaper in print that's disappearing. So everybody needs to be ready for a data-driven world. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's a solid summary. You know, before SoftBank invested in, in Career Karma, there's another guy that actually invested in Career Karma that you know very well. His name is Paul Judge. Uh, he's one of our angels. And this was before there was an opportunity fund. And I know uh, from what I understand, you and Paul were Henry Crown fellows. So, and then started noodling with this idea of the opportunity fund. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Paul Judge, the opportunity fund, and why you created that? Yeah. So we all got selected to a really, really cool program by the Aspen Institute. It's called the Henry Crown Fellowship. And what they do is a collage of the people. So you have business people, you have public company CEOs, you have academia, you have politicians, you have a combination to really replicate the world. And, and you know, I met this guy, Paul Judge, for those of you who haven't met him, you know, first he's the best dressed guy I ever met. The guy looks elegant. Doesn't matter if he, when he wakes up at night and he just, he just, first he's a good looking guy and second he's a well-dressed person. So, and third, he's smart as hell. I mean, yeah, he's a great, great, great investor. And uh, so I immediately connected with him. We were in the Henry Crown Fellows. And uh, we just had a good time. And, and I, at that point in time, I was in a different phase in my life, right? I wasn't in my investor. I was an operator. I was the CEO of Spring. And before that, I was an entrepreneur. So there wasn't really a lot to do with Paul, except, hey, he was telling me how his job was to go find the, you know, the next best entrepreneur, and if they were entrepreneurs of color, even better. And to be fair, he's playing in Atlanta, where traditionally hasn't been the land of entrepreneurship or the land of venture funding. So I really liked the guy, and we just stayed in touch. And then one day, as I was watching, I was watching, uh, I think CNN or whatever, and they were showing the Black Lives Matter movement. And I mean, the tragedy that we were living, you know, I figured that it was about time to do something exciting, like launch a fund dedicated to Blacks and Hispanics. And I thought, like, who could be in my investment committee that truly understands this, that has the empathy and that has lived this? You know, and I couldn't think of a better person than Paul. And I'm, I was also, I'm also Hispanic, right? So I also lived, you know, how difficult it is to raise money when you're Hispanic, when you're Black and all that. And I said, hey, you know, let's get together. 
black guy from Atlanta, a Hispanic guy from uh, from Bolivia, and let's launch this fund. And we invited also Stacy Judge, who's just phenomenal, who was the CEO of Tax Rabbit. And in no time, we launched this fund. And we have really two intentions. You know, one is put our money where our mouth was, right? Everybody was talking about doing things to help. And we said, hey, we're going to do what we know how to do, which is invest. And wanted to also have other people follow us. Because 100 million bucks is a nice start, but the problem is way, way bigger, right? I mean, you know, the amount of venture capital funds that are run by Black people or Hispanics is, I think, less than 1%, 2 3%. You know, the amount of money that's dedicated to Black or Hispanic entrepreneurs is negligible. So so we started this, and, and I would say the biggest win here is not only to find great entrepreneurs like you and great companies like Career Karma, but to get other big institutions to play ball. And Goldman started playing, Apple started playing, uh, PayPal started playing. So big companies, because sometimes it takes one, right, to be to launch first and everybody. And now I love it because now even though I don't like the competition, I love the fact that entrepreneurs have competition. All the great companies with entrepreneurs of color have choices now. And we have to fight in order for us to get our allocation. We have to say, hey, I'm better than the other one. And back then it wasn't like that. If you were a black entrepreneur or Hispanic entrepreneur, you would take money from whoever was willing to give you money. You didn't have choices or less choices. So now I think we've done that. And I think, you know, working with Paul and Stacey is a, is a true gift. I mean, when you said fight, it made me think about your talk at the Brazil Stone Cavalli. You talked about the importance of being a street fighter. I think it'd be, and, and I know we're going to talk about mindset real quick. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of being a street fighter, not just to start companies, but also just to break into tech and like really go after your dreams? So I'll share this story that I haven't shared with a lot of people, right? When I was running Brightstar and Massa basically bought my company for a, for a lot more than I ever dreamed it was humanly possible to ever get to those numbers. At the end, he says, hey, I'm really buying Brightstar because I want you to go turn around a sprint. And I said, but, you know, there's a lot of smarter people than me. I mean, they know technology back then was, you know, uh, 3G, moving to 4G, moving to LTE. I'm like, this thing is way above my pay grade. And Master looked at me and he says, look, technology you can learn. I says, and you're a street fighter like me. So in order for you to turn around this company, you need a street fighter. And the approach that we took was, you know, to convert, I don't know, probably we had like 80,000 salespeople if you had all the agents and all that. And our goal was to convert those 80,000 people to be street fighters, to take no excuses, to basically... We converted the CEO, we converted a store manager, and we call him, you're the CEO of your store. And each store is a multi-million dollar store because they sell a lot of phones and all that. And we had this culture of just fighting and street fighting and winning. And it was the most amazing feeling in the world when you can redirect 80,000 people from boring salespeople to street fighters to take to, to learn how to take, say, never take no for an answer and figure out how to problem solve, and figure out how to overcome obstacles, and figure out how to dream big, and figure out how to win. And I think that's something, you know, that Massa has taught me. I mean, a lot of people, you know, Massa is the founder of SoftBank, and he's, you know, if you think there's discrimination of Blacks and Hispanics in the U.S., he's Korean, and a Korean in Japan, is it's uh, pretty similar to being a Hispanic in the U.S. And the fact that he's fought himself through to be one of the wealthiest people in the world, to have built one of the most amazing companies in the world, to basically be transforming the world. You know, his theory was, look, I'm going to fight harder than anybody else and, and I'm going to win. And I think, you know, that's what we try to institute among the many, many entrepreneurs that are part of the Sopapan family. Awesome, man. I, I love that story. And um, speaking of 
you know, you have you, you, your reputation precedes you. You you you're known for a lot of things, including turnarounds, and now you're this executive chairman at WeWork, which is actually a, a very unique position to be in, given that you know the vaccine is here, people are about to get back to work, people are talking about remote work, hybrid work environments. Historically, I know WeWork uh, had acquired Flatiron School; they don't have Flatiron School anymore. But there's really interesting. We had the the CEO of Flatiron while, while they were still in WeWork talking about WeWork like a like a global campus. So can you talk to us about like your view on WeWork's position in the remote work environment and maybe your thoughts on how it might be able to play in the education space? Yeah. So Flatiron, it wasn't that I didn't think they were a great company. It is that we needed to get back to basics, focus on our core business, and we needed no distractions. So first thing first is when you're the largest uh, landlord in the biggest cities in the world, you just got to focus on filling those spaces so you can pay the rent, right? Mm-hmm. So when I go back at WeWork as a whole, you know, I will say that Adam had a credit, an amazing idea. So the vision of Adam of what WeWork was, totally good. The execution wasn't there. The execution wasn't there because we opened a thousand buildings in two years, right? Walmart, sorry, Marriott, they took him 125 years to open 800 buildings. So in two years, we opened more buildings than anybody else to create this enormous, and it's a, normal, it's a normal global campus that is such a powerful idea. What we work is today is the most, I would say, the company that is best situated in the world because every single company, every single small business, medium business, large business, they're looking for something called flexibility. And the entire value proposition of WeWork is predicated on flexibility, right? If you decide that you wanna, you're an entrepreneur and you want to start your own business, first thing you do, you go look for office space. Normally, you go to a landlord, the landlord is not going to want to rent to you because you're a new business. They're going to ask you to put together a significant security deposit, which you don't have. You'd rather use that security deposit for your business. Then assuming they are nice enough to rent you, they probably rent the crappy places because they won't let you into the really hot real estate. Once you get there, you got to hire an architect. You got to hire a construction company. You got to get a designer. You got to set up your utilities. It's truly a pain, and by the time you're done, it's six to nine months, and you got to sign a five-year commitment, ten-year commitment. So think of WeWork now from a flexibility perspective. You have an idea, you have a business, you want, you're growing. You can just go to WeWork, and 24 hours later, you got your office with utilities, with connectivity, and by the way, if you kill it in your business, you can grow in the same building. Right. You don't need to come in. You know, you can go on a month-to-month lease. And that's the beauty of WeWork. And in a world where nobody really knows what the future of work is, right? All we can ask is ask people, what do you think the future of work is going to be? And what most people are, will tell you is, I don't want to go back to the old times of working five days a week, you know, 60 hours a week. I want to go once in a while, maybe two, three days a week. I don't want to drive to a fire headquarters. I want to work close to home. Most people will say, I want to get out of the house because it's so hard to do a Zoom when I have dogs, crying kids, angry wives or angry husbands. I mean, it's just hard, right? So you want to go to a place where you can do your thing. And that's what we work bring. So, you know, what everybody thought would have been, you go back a year, nobody gave us a chance. You know, when I go in front of CNBC and tell everybody we're going to turn around, we work, they told we're all cuckoos. So it was never going to happen. Well, you know, I have no doubt. At the beginning of next year, you know, WeWork is a profitable company. Someday in the future, will be a public company, and this company is going to kill it. And what we did is we put a total street fighter mentality here. I mean, 
salespeople, they understand they only have one job in life, and that's to fill the space. Now, education, we found a whole new world that we didn't know, and that is great universities are going virtual, right? And they want to have a chance now because of the pandemic, suddenly you don't really need a campus. You can become a global university without a campus as long as you have WeWorks. So we have some of the biggest universities in the world. They've asked us not to tell their names, but I'll say a couple, maybe Columbia and Georgetown and some of the leading universities. Now they're going global and they tell their students as part of your tuition, here's your pass to go to any WeWork in the world. And kids love it. Imagine, I mean, when I, I, I would imagine when I was going to college, if I could have gone hang out at WeWork, you know, free coffee, still free beer and a few, not, not all of them, which is great. I mean, so I am so pumped about the future of WeWork and, uh, and everything that's happening to the future of work. Yeah, awesome. Marcelo, that's a great point because the way Arthur Rubin and I started back when we used to live in Atlanta, we used to go to Atlanta Tech Village, which was kind of like a co-working space for startups. I think for this new generation of college students, if they have this ability of like actually getting exposed to what startups look like early on, that's just like a superpower that you have early on that you won't have later in your like that could potentially make you into an engineer versus some other major that you picked when you were applying to schools. And I love the point that you mentioned about turning the perceived disadvantages into advantages with WeWork. For a lot of our community members, they face a lot of challenges where people doubt them when they say they want to become data scientists or engineers. And the whole point of career karma is to give them that confidence that they can they can achieve their dream and they can do it with other people. I'm curious for you and kind of your journey of where you got today, do you have any stories that you can share where you face rejection or you face some challenges where like most people would have just given up, but you persevered that could provide some motivation for our members facing these challenges right now? I, mean, I could spend a day telling you the amount of times I got rejected when I had a business idea, when I went to raise money, when I went to borrow money from the bank, when I went to lease a building back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, the norm is that you get rejected. But the beauty of doing this is, first, you got to believe in yourself, right? I mean, if you don't believe in yourself, if you don't believe in your idea, if you don't wake up in the morning, you know, all ready to go, whatever you have decided you're going to achieve, then you have zero chance. But if, you, if you're a believer in what you're doing, then, you know, after many no's, a yes will come. Mm-hmm. After many doors get shut, shut down, you know, a door will get open. After many times you apply for jobs, mm-hmm. eventually, you know, what you can never do is you can never give up, right? That's the first rule is, is never give up. I mean, the story of, of fundraising at Bryster is a funny one. I mean, at the beginning, we were so successful but, you know, we were Hispanics. And, and I'll tell you, I will never forget that one venture capital that pulled me aside. I said, look, you got to be involved with drugs or money laundering or something. How could a company be a billion dollars two years in existence? I mean, you're in Miami. You're, you're doing business in Latin America. It's just impossible. And that was really painful to say, no, no, I'm just good. You know, I'm, I sell more cell phones than anybody else. And we hit more market. And we're really good at it. And we actually got turned away because they say, you know, this is, cannot, be, cannot be real, right? It cannot be real that a kid from Miami started selling phones from the back of the cars. And two years later, your company reaches a billion dollars and they're in 14 countries. I said, you're from Miami. There must be money laundering. It has to be something weird. 
I said, there's nothing weird. We're just really good at solving customers' problems in an enormous market where cell phones were exploding. So, I mean, we got tons, tons of stories about it. About more than rejection, it's also about if people really believed in it, you know, it's hard to explain that in order for you to be an entrepreneur or a founder or whatever you decide to do, is if everybody understood how to do it, then everybody would have done it, right? Mm-hmm. And if everybody could see it, then they would do it themselves. So it's that ability to have that eye to identify that opportunity where 99.99% of people don't see it. You need that 0.1% who's going to believe in you, who's going to fund you, and then you're going to change the world. Because think about it. If it was so easy, if you if the idea was so logic, then, you, then everybody would do it. So yeah. therefore, the idea wouldn't be good. And that's what happens to most entrepreneurs. Or, or most people, they have this amazing, crazy idea. And either your friends, your family, they want to tell you, hey, don't do it. You know, get a job. You know, the idea is dumb. I mean, go back, uh, you know, when Facebook was founded. I mean, when Mark Zuckerberg had the idea of connecting people, people told him it was the dumbest thing. Nobody was going to really pay attention. And look, look what Facebook is today. Or look what you mean at, at Biden's when he says, hey, I want to deliver relevant news utilizing AI to make sure that, you know, it's a lot better than opening the page of a newspaper and you're reading stuff that you really don't care. And now imagine if somebody delivered news that you care. People said, oh, there's no way. New York Times is too powerful or Shanghai, whatever is too powerful. And, and it, that's because they were believers and they got turned away thousand times. And but they knew that their idea was so unique. That's what makes those great companies and those great entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And you also you also touched on the fact that you you grew up in Miami. You know, a lot of people when they first started coming to Career Karma, they thought they all had to move to Silicon Valley like we did, which is what we actually met Paul Jubbage at Atlanta Tech Village, which is similar to WeWork. And then like we had to move to Silicon Valley in order to make it. But now that there's all these remote work opportunities, places like Miami are springing up, places like Atlanta are springing up, DC, Chicago, all these other places. So you actually, if you're a parent, you can stay home and you can work. So you actually did something really special in Miami. I was just in Miami with Mayor uh, Francis Suarez. His right-hand man, Saif, has been on our podcast before talking about the work that they're doing. And we're working on this, this initiative called Reskill Miami to give laptops to people in Miami so that they can break into tech. And you, you announced something pretty big in, in Miami to help people in Miami. So can you talk about what you just did in Miami? So in Miami, we opened what is called a 100 million Miami initiative. And that is where we're going to put a, We're going to invest in companies that are Miami-based or companies that are moving to Miami to make sure they have a guaranteed source of capital. Because if you want to be successful, whether we like it or not, you need capital, you need talent, and you need location. And Miami from a location is unbeatable. I mean, all it takes is go check it out once, see the weather, see how beautiful it is. And then you go back to other parts and say, why haven't I been here before? And that was because the way of working is you need a headquarters, you need a, you know, hey, you want to get a job in Google, you got to go to San Francisco, Silicon Valley. You want to get a job in tech, that is the only place. Well, now that you can work from anywhere, guess what? Companies don't care where you are. It's your choice. And then from a, from a better, I don't think there's a better place to be than Miami from a quality of life perspective. Secondly, is you need to have capital, right? And the source of capital, you know, I was reading how everybody was getting super excited. Oh my God, Blackstone is moving there. Well, those are private equity. Those are value investors. Those are guys who write big checks 
for value. You know, they don't write checks to an entrepreneur with an idea that needs the first half a million dollars for the first million dollars. So that's why we thought that was going to be important. And third, you need talent. You know, money combined with great place to live won't do it, you know, because you need talent. And that's why, you know, I'm a huge believer in, again, you guys have a huge job to, hey, tech companies will move to Miami. Somebody's going to have to make those employees skill to what tech companies are looking for. And that's where you play, and that's where FIU has to play, and University of Miami, and Miami-Dade Community College, and everybody, because I think the demand for skilled workers is going to be much greater than the supply we have today. The good thing is people love to move to Miami, so we'll be able to move, move but we got to make sure that we have the right talent, because if not, this game, you don't win it with two out of three. You win it with three out of three. And that's, again, talent, location, and capital. And I'll do my part, Capital. You got to do your, your part in talent. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. We're about to wrap it up. I know, you know, I, I love how you brought it home right there. You know, rapid reskilling is one of the most critical issues of our time, not just politically, but also economically in the United States and all over the world. We appreciate you uh, investing in, in career karma. And together, we will help a billion people in the next 10 years. And I think that that leads us into the lightning round. Timor, kick, kick us off with the lightning round. Yeah, Marcelo. So on our podcast, we actually just released like over 120 episodes and we've always asked uh, our guests for tactical advice to help our listeners break into their first careers in tech. And so we'd love to hear tactical things that someone listening to this podcast, whether they're driving in their car, cleaning their home, can do to basically change their life this year. And so with that said, Arthur, take it away. Uh, thanks, Timor. So this question takes it back to the basics. So if you were moving to a brand new city, let's say Miami, and you only had $100 in your pocket, like what would you do and how would you spend that $100 to you know, start a new career in tech? <laughs> if you only had 100 bucks, well, it's going to be hard, right? You might need a little more. But the beauty is, hey, we live in a virtual economy today. So you know, there are today tech companies that will allow you to basically rent a room by the day, similar to the WeWork, but the we live concept. And you're not going to need the amount of money you needed before when you move to a city. So first hundred bucks, make sure you have enough for a place to eat, a place to sleep, at least for the first couple of days till you find one of those jobs. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. Whenever you're in a in a hustling mindset and you want to go to work, what kind of music do you turn on to either like be very productive or get a really solid workout in? It depends. <laughs> you know. If I'm in Miami, I'm going to put a good, uh, a good Spanish uh, music. I'm either going to put merengue or salsa. It just, it just goes with the city. And I'm going to wake up and be all pumped from the beginning of the day. Yeah. Do you have any advice for the parents that are at home with kids trying to balance going to a boot camp or to, to train, trying to learn how to break into tech and also manage their family? Do you have any advice for them on how to do both? Because it's pretty impressive that you've done all these things and you have six kids. That's that's pretty impressive. So how do you what advice do you have for them? I mean, as chaotic as it will be, you have no choice that to survive, you might have to do that tech bootcamp to be able to be useful in the new workforce. And you gotta learn how to juggle, right? Education. I mean, I sit in my house, I see kids, uh, they're running and you gotta stick them in front of their iPad. And, uh, and we're doing Zooms and all that. And this, this will be chaotic times. But the beautiful thing is the world has been, it has turned so tolerant today that it's fine. It's perfect. You know, I'm doing Zooms and I see my kid jump in the back of my neck. 
imagine if that happened a year ago. You think, oh, people think you're crazy. If the world has turned tolerant, sometimes we take life too serious, right? Uh, you know, just let go, go try new things. Uh, because if you don't, you know, I always tell, it was funny how before we told companies, innovate or you will be disrupted. Now you got to tell that to people. Unless you reinvent yourself, you will be disrupted and you will not have those opportunities. So people got to think like companies. You got to reinvent, you got to disrupt yourself and you got to be ready for what's coming next, which is basically, you know, I'd like to say the reinvention of the world of everything that we do is coming in the next five years. So learn how to be flexible because you will need it and keep an open mind. Awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks, Marcelo. And um, we usually ask people um, like for more advice. But since we have such a special guest today, do you mind sharing with people just the magnitude of the number of jobs that are available at companies like TikTok, like at Ubers of the world? The reason I ask this is whenever we have people joining our community, I ask them to guess how many people work at Uber on the engineering side. And a lot of people throw out numbers like 10 or 20 people when in reality, it's like much, much more. Can you give our listeners just like a feel for how many opportunities are there with your portfolio companies, but also with other tech companies in the world? I mean, there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs that are being created because the fight for technical talent is enormous. I mean, uh, if you are properly skilled with the right technical skills, with the right, you know, go from a science and AI engineer to a computer science or somebody who knows how to code, the demand for talent is huge. So you should never be, I don't think in these next few years, you should be worried about having a job. You're going to have to worry about choosing which job you want, but you have to make sure that you're skilled in whatever the world needs. So with that, thank you. It's been a pleasure to see you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. You know, it's been so nice to be part of your family and we're going to do great things together. So I got to run. So thank you. Thank Thank you so much, Marcelo. We'll see you later, man. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Let's break in. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.